Is this everything that there is, or is there more? The physicist Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington said, The stuff of the world is mind stuff. And now, 50 years later, quantum physics is validating that statement. Our universe exists within our own consciousness. I'm Ron, and welcome to Simplest State, where we explore creativity and the expression of consciousness in the lives of our guests. James Hogan was born in Saskatchewan, Canada. He's the best-selling author and president of an award-winning public relations firm. Jim writes and speaks widely on public relations, communications, and incivility in the public sphere, keying especially on lessons from his most recent book, I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. Hogan has spent more than a decade studying today's warlike approach to public discourse and how self-awareness, empathy, and pluralistic advocacy could help us cut through this toxic barrier to change. A tireless advocate for ethics in public discourse, he founded the influential online news site DSmog Blog. Hogan is former chair of the David Suzuki Foundation and Al Gore's Climate Project Canada. He has served on numerous national and international boards and advisory committees, including Shell Global's External Review Committee in The Hague, the Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education, and the Four Great Rivers Society. He is the author of two other books, Do the Right Thing, PR Tips for a Skeptical Public, and Climate Cover-Up, The Crusade to Deny Global Warming. Jim Hogan, welcome to Simplest State, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. May I ask you, Jim, what is it that motivates you most in the work that you do? I feel that, you know, the years that I spent with David Suzuki, people like Al Gore and uh, others taught me that I have a responsibility to participate in community conversations in public discourse, and I I think I have a because I'm a public relations person who's so involved in helping professionally helping institutions participate in public discourse. I have a special responsibility to understand how it works to to help my my clients and organizations that I volunteer for participate in a effective and with integrity. And so I, what that kind of led to was me kind of stumbling on to the problem of propaganda and this I have a friend who put it a way that's I found really kind of uh, easy to understand. He said uh, just like you can pollute uh, the natural environment, you can pollute public conversations. And people who participate in public discourse, I think, have a responsibility to ensure that they themselves are not part of that pollution and that they're able to point out polluted public discourse or propaganda when they see it so that people can understand the difference between what's true and what's false and what's right and what's wrong and those things that are so important when we're going to have conversations with each other about public policies around things like the health of our oceans and climate change. I had no idea when I started this that it would end up be, being so kind of all-consuming. But the closer you look at it, the more complex and important it becomes. Love the fact that you brought out the point that you felt it was your responsibility. Because that type of integrity is so rare in the corporate world. And especially, we have to say the PR professionals are often depicted as the villains in that because they represent, protect, and defend those corporate stances. And quite to the contrary, you have quoted Carol Tavris, who said, the greatest danger we face on the planet is not only from bad people doing corrupt, evil, and bad things, 
but also from good people who justify the bad, evil, and corrupt things they do in order to preserve their belief that they are good, kind, and ethical people. People trying to protect themselves and protect their belief that they are intrinsically good, despite whatever their actions may be. Yeah, you know, when I started out in the, uh, when I was kind of young and naive and I started out in the public relations business, I focused on this, uh, you know, helping people develop messages. And in that development of those messages, we, at my agency, we prided ourselves in trying to keep things simple and, and clear and, and helping our clients become better communicators, more articulate communicators. Over the years, as I've gotten older and wiser, one of the things that I've learned is that, that another responsibility that I have is in reminding people, helping people understand when they're wrong. And one of the, weirdly, one of the things that one has to do when one sets out on such a challenging mission is keeping in mind that that also applies to them, that we could be wrong. And when we find ourselves in a position where that just is the furthest thing from our mind, we're in danger of uh, working against our own interests and the interests of our, uh, our neighbors. Certainly. I mean, it, it's difficult to look at oneself objectively and try to discern, are we doing this for the wrong reasons? Am I wrong? Am I doing it because of some selfish instinct of self-preservation? Yeah, it is that they perceive as good. Right. It's not all white hat and black hat no. and cut and dry. You know, uh, I met this amazing guy. His name is Roger Connor. And he came up with this concept or at least he explained this concept to me, of uh, something he called the advocacy trap. The idea behind this advocacy trap is, if I feel strongly about something and I'm advocating for it and you disagree with me, it's very hard to kind of not sort of slip into this advocacy trap where you start to think that the person who's disagreeing with you when they persist isn't up to something fishy, isn't not just wrong, but a wrongdoer. And eventually you find yourself when you're like fully consumed in the advocacy trap in a battle between good and evil. And and it's part of human psychology when you feel strongly and you know some, and you know, something's right is to go down this route. And eventually self-righteousness comes to be as bad in polluting public discourse as total denial of a problem. And so human communication in the public square, in a polluted public square, is very complicated and it requires our attention. And part of the attention that I think that it requires is our is something that Dalai Lama, uh, I interviewed the Dalai Lama for my book, and it was one of the most frightening experiences, sort of sitting with with him. I'd spent a week with him at this conference in Dharamsala, and then I had this private interview with him, and we, the TV cameras were on, and, you know, there were all these... I was telling him about climate disinformation, and, and, he, and he said, really? Really? And then he looked at this audience, and, and there were all these climate scientists there who were, like, shaking, nodding, you know, in agreement with me. And, uh, and so I, I felt, you know, I, I, I felt bad, you know, talking to a holy man about such a kind of an evil subject matter. But he was, when we were talking about the environment, he said, there's no doubt at all that the reason we have all these environmental problems is corruption. So we talked for a while and, and uh, then the interview was over and we're standing up and somebody turned the cameras off. And then he reached over and put his finger on my forehead. And he said, we like to think the Western mind is more sophisticated. But in Tibet, we go with the heart, and and that can be much stronger. So maybe if we take the Western mind and the Tibetan heart and we pull them both together, we can uh, we can be more successful. That what we need is more warm heartedness. If we want people to stop, he talked about how we were raising a generation of 
bystanders. But if we want people to stop being bystanders, we need to figure out some way in ourselves of dealing with our own and with other people's negative emotions. That it's these negative emotions that are really at the heart of so much unreasonableness and so much disinformation. It's incredible wisdom because I thought when I started to write my book that I was looking at the polluted public square and like, what do you do about it? And never occurred to me it had anything to do with me. But in fact, you know, the more people I talked to, the more I learned that it has everything to do with me. I mean, you know, the quality of, of, of whatever it is you're doing depends upon your own inner qualities. And so you need to bring, a, I think, a kind of a, if you want the world to be more reasonable, you need to bring the power of reason to the conversation. And if you want the world to listen more and to hear you, you need to bring hearing and listening to the conversation, right? It's not just, that's not just some kind of highfalutin idea. That is how it actually works. The better you are at listening, the deeper your messages will be, will go and the more they'll be heard. What you just said it really resonates. What, what the Dalai Lama had brought out to you that, well, in Asia, perhaps there's much more from the heart value, more on the feeling level. In the West, it's much more on the intellect. And perhaps what's needed is a greater balance between the two, as he said, a greater ability to reason, to hear, to understand, to empathize. And, and you have said in, in this regard that facts are not enough to change minds. So then if, if facts are not enough to change minds, how do we change minds? Because it, it's one thing, as you say, to, to listen more, to hear more. But on the other hand, when the conflicting point of view is adamantly mendacious and spreading misinformation, does one combat that simply by listening more? Yeah, and that I think is kind of the heart of, uh, that's kind of right at the heart or at the threshold of the problem. And uh, it was one of the big lessons for me because when I was looking at the whole problem of propaganda and disinformation, and part of my motivation was around climate change. And I was thinking, how is it possible that you can have so much evidence about how serious this problem of climate change is? And be doing so little about the problem. I mean, how can we know so much about this and do so little about it? And I thought that a lot of it had to do with people either just not paying attention, which I think a lot of that is a lot of the problem, or being misinformed. And I think that it is true that that is part of the problem. But I don't think that those are, certainly they're not the only parts of the problem and they may not even be the biggest part of the problem. I think the biggest part of the problem is that we we have a tendency to tribalize science. And what I mean by that is we basically create an understanding around climate change or around vaccines or whatever the subject matter that has to do more with the cultural group that we belong to than it has to do with our understanding of science or understanding of uh, the facts and the information. But even though that's true, it's a mistake to think by clearing up the facts that you basically will then change minds. Because I think when you tribalize things like this, you basically create a situation where you're, the way people are thinking is, this isn't something that people like us believe. And if you do believe this, you can't be one of us, you must be one of them. So it's, it's, that's what the filter's like, right? And so what that means is that you're kind of at loggerheads, you're at tribal loggerheads. And essentially, when you're at loggerheads like that, people feel attacked when you give them facts or when you give them or you try to correct them. And so to me, one of the things I realized was that you need to be careful of when you introduce the facts. Like first I have to create the space when the public square is being bombarded and polluted by disinformation or misunderstanding or propaganda or whatever you want to describe it as, you first have to open up the space 
where you can actually have the conversation. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was someone else I interviewed for the book, he talks about it as deep listening. So that this process of trying to open up the space where you can have the conversation involves almost like a communication of respect. The idea is that he calls it uh, compassionate listening, deep listening. And what I do when I'm doing that is rather than just be waiting to say something when you're talking, that I'm, I'm doing something else. That maybe, maybe you and I are not, maybe we just had an argument or a fight and we're not getting along very well. He says, I go up to my friend and I'll say, look, you know, I know that I haven't done a very good job of listening and how you feel and, and, and our relationship is important to me. And so I really want to hear what it is that you're trying to say and what it is you're thinking. And that then my job is to, Allow that person to empty their heart. You're allowing that person to completely say whatever it is they want to say. And if they say something critical of you, if they say something bitter, if they, you know, if things get really negative, just let it go. Let it pass. Deal with it next week. And just be, take the job of letting that person empty their heart. And if you do it right, you just might get to the point where that person feels, because you've listened, that you actually respect their right to feel what it is, whatever it is they feel, and they might actually just return the favor. And so it's it's techniques like this that sort of work at kind of opening up this space. One of the reasons why I think it's important is because propagandists, like people like who are really up to mischief, one of the things they've learned how to do is not just give you false information, but they've learned how to tribalize the information so that you hate the person who disagrees with you. And, and you get into this tribalized state where unreasonableness is the main theme of everything when somebody's trying to disagree with you. And so you have to be very careful if you're in the business of being an educator or someone who's advocating for something that's important to you, that you do not want to be helping the person who's trying to prevent you by through this tribalization by you disrespecting. And so just because you're right about something doesn't mean you can't contribute to the tribalization, right? And so compassion is a very practical thing. It's not spiritual. It is like totally practical and it's a way to to navigate the public polluted public square. If there's not mutual respect and as you say, listening, compassionate listening to the other person, then there's no meeting point. And if there's no meeting point, you can each go on for hours, days, months, years, and you're never going to come to a resolution. Yes. And and, and speaking of Tiknat Han, I mean you had that meeting with him, which I'd like to hear more about the tea. But one of the things he said precisely in this regard is that, and I quote him here, usually when we hear or read something new, we just compare it to our own ideas. If it is the same, we accept it and say that it is correct. If it is not, we say it is incorrect. In either case, we learn nothing. I mean, that's not only simple and yet profound, but to me what that also says is, in other words, what we call perception is really more of a projection than a perception. That the, the reality as we see it is a projection. We filter in what corroborates and strengthens our, the model that we've already created in our mind. Then we project that onto everything else that we see in here. Yeah, and he, uh, it was so funny because when David, David Suzuki and I had tea with him out at UBC, along with the mayor of Vancouver, and Thich Nhat Hanh was basically trying to convince David and I that we should be meditating. I think he was trying to convince David more than me, uh, but he was he was trying to convince us to meditate because he said, look, you need to clean up the inner ecology. You know, you need to, if you want to be a stronger warrior for the environment, you know, deal with the inner ecology first. And uh, 
and he was, and he said something like, uh, you don't need to tell people they're destroying the environment. They know they're destroying the environment. You need to deal with the despair. Their despair or your despair? Their despair. Well, I think probably both, but I I assumed at the time he was talking about the despair that people feel about us destroying the environment. And and so I said to him, I said, uh, you're not saying that David Suzuki shouldn't be an activist, are you? You're not saying that we shouldn't be environmental activists. I mean, I know that uh, your monks in Vietnam used to put the pictures of uh, corrupt policemen up on their website. That's activism. So activism can't be bad. And he looked at me. I was like, I was maybe like a foot away from sitting right, almost touching his shoulder. And he looked me in the eye and it was like, uh, I know you've had these moments with Maharishi, but it was like, this incredibly, it was like somebody looking right at your soul, seeing stuff in me that I don't even know is there. And he was like looking right into me and he said, speak the truth, but not to punish. Speak the truth, but not to punish. And I remember coming down off the uh, stage where there was all these cameras and everything. And there was a small group of people from his community and from the Suzuki Foundation in the audience, maybe 50 people. And Enid, my wife, was sitting in the front row and she looked at me and she said, now you you heard what he said, right? Speak the truth, but not to punish. Speak the truth, but not to punish. And so I, for me, I was kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing. And I, it took me a few days and I started to think about it. And I thought, is that like a Zen koan? You know, did I just get a Zen koan from Thich Nhat Hanh? And, and for sure I did, because I have been thinking about that ever since. And to me, he was the whole thing, and this is appropriate because Thich Nhat Hanh just passed uh, a few weeks back. And he was the founder of engaged Buddhism. Thich Nhat Hanh didn't believe that we should just go to a cave and meditate. He felt that we should we should be active in the world and making the world a better place. But he also believed that there was as much, if not more, work internally than there is externally. And so you need to be, I'm assuming the way I took it from what I heard from him was kind of a balance of where you try to, you know, you need to improve yourself as well as trying to improve the world. You know, when he's saying, speak the truth, but not to punish, he isn't saying, don't be angry. I think he's warning people that anger can be a very bad thing and that you need to be, maybe it's that Aristotle's golden mean, trying to find that point of balance where you're someone who is engaged in the world, but not someone who is gets so angry that no one wants to listen to a word they're saying, or someone who's so passive that they you know, they don't care when evil things are going on around them. And so how do you do that? I mean, that's not an easy thing to do, to walk to walk in the world as a righteous person who is uh, trying to do the right things themselves and, and live in a society that, that is compassionate towards people and, and the environment. It never occurred to me when I started writing my book that I'd be talking to these, all these spiritual leaders and that it would really have something to do <laughs> with our inner life, not just something, but everything to do with our inner life and what kind of a person we can grow into. But that's what I learned from Thich Nhat Hanh and the, and the Dalai Lama and others. And when Thich Nhat Hanh says, speak the truth, but not to punish, it reminds me, of course, there is a Vedic expression from the ancient Vedic literature of India that says, Speak the sweet truth, Mm. meaning do not speak that which is not true and do not speak that which is not sweet to hear. Right. Those are the criteria for our speech. Right. And that's what we should follow. Now, speaking about, I mean, you were touched briefly on on what he said about uh, inner development and that it's that inner ecology and one has to balance both. And now you do practice meditation. I do. What effect or benefit has that brought into your work and to your pursuits in terms as an author, as a climate activist, as a public relations expert? I think that I 
you know, I started meditating in my, in my early 20s, you know, like maybe 20, 24, 25. And this is transcendental meditation. Yeah. And I, so I started meditating mid-20s. And I think that the, the practice kind of evolved for me over time. And, uh, you know, I, I, when, when I, early on, it just basically kind of calmed me down. So I was like more effective because I was thinking more clearly rather than being like totally stressed out. But as time went on, I think one of the things that I, that I developed, not even knowing it, was like a deep sense of fairness and respect for other people. And I always used to pride myself when I was in business with like the people would say, why don't you just fire that guy? You know, for me, I always thought that it was better to treat people well and that even if they didn't deserve to be treated well, I would go out of my way to not burn bridges with people. Even if somebody was misbehaving or what, you know, you run into all sorts of things in life. And, and, but so over time, I think I sort of decided that I was not going to in business let people turn me into some kind of SOB. You know, I just didn't want to do it. And, and I thought I can be successful and I can still not be a jerk about things. Right. And, and that may not seem like a big deal. But let me tell you, there's a lot of aggravation that you can like, you know, avoid <laughs> with that way of looking at things. You know, I ran a big, successful public relations company. It was the biggest uh, public relations firm in Western Canada. We were in the middle of so many big public issues. And so it's super stressful and, you know, involves a lot of important institutions and important people. And so having those kind of values that came from meditation, sometimes I had to develop them. Sometimes they just seemed to come. Those were incredibly valuable to me. Those uh, personify something that Goethe said, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember exactly, but it was something to the effect of, if we treat people as they are, we make them worse. But if we treat them as they should be, we help them to become all that they can be. So in other words, looking for, for the best in someone and acting upon that rather than emphasis on the differences and shortcomings. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I would say, and this has happened more kind of uh, recently for me over the last decade because of so much. <laughs> I remember when I was with Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, Suzuki, UBC gave us this beautiful mansion to have the tea. Thich Nhat Hanh wanted to have tea with David Suzuki, so we needed some place. So we got this mansion from UBC. And so David and I had been waiting for him, and something happened, and we got pulled back in, and we, were, we weren't there when he showed up. And so rather than coming in, he just decided to go for a walk with all his monks in the garden. So he was walking through the garden, and he was talking to his monks about flowers and this this whole his whole philosophy of interbeing and and you know how the flower is really the sunlight and all you know the minerals and all these kinds of you know this sort of esoteric conversation about consciousness and David and I caught up and we were kind of walking behind quite a bit quite a bit behind and David looked at me and he said you know what you know what I see when I see all this and we're just surrounded by by nature by flowers and trees and plants and, you know, Vancouver's a rainforest, right? So David said, what I see when I look at this is photosynthesis. You know, I see the, you know, I see the sunlight and he described how photosynthesis worked. And I thought, this is amazing, you know, listening to Thich Nhat Hanh out of one ear and David Suzuki out of the other, talking about pretty much the same thing, but one through the eyes of a scientist and a science educator and the other through a, a you know, a meditation teacher. And what, so one of the things that over the last decade that I realized is how that meditation has helped me see the interconnectedness of things, see the oneness of things and understand it and, and feel it and, 
can sometimes experience it. And I think that that is an incredibly valuable thing to see that things aren't the way they appear. They're not, they look separate, but that, you know, that the trees around us and more and more science, interestingly, is merging in so many ways with spiritual teachings, uh, particularly spiritual te teachings from the West, you know, like Maharishi's teachings or teachings in Buddhism that teach that we're all basically, it's all life. And we're part of it and all of the, the natural world around us is part of it. And I think that to me, that I take as a huge responsibility, you know, that I have that understanding. And that's one of the reasons why I keep doing what I'm doing rather than just go skiing all the time. Such a fascinating point, Jim. And that interconnectedness of all things. And I think almost any great spiritual teaching has at its basis some knowledge about the interconnectedness of things, that, that what we do will have far-reaching effects. And what we learn in the study of meditation is, is what's often referred to as the, the principle of the second element. When we look at the world, there's so many issues to contend with. There, there's the climate change. There's political disturbances. There's civil unrest. There's all kinds of inequalities and imbalances and cruelty perpetrated around the world. To address in each and every one of them seems almost impossible to do. But what many of the Eastern philosophies have in common is this idea of Due to this interconnectedness of things, the principle of the second element, you come into a very dark room and you're stumbling and hitting your knee and tripping. All you have to do is bring in the second element, bring in the light. When you add the light, the problems, as difficult and as complex as they may have been, vanish through that introduction of the second element. Does that in any way apply to the type of work that you do? Do you integrate that type of thinking in your approach? There may be a part of what I'm uh, doing that involves something similar to that. I mean, I you know, that conversation that we had earlier, talking about, you know, public discourse and when people strongly disagree and are kind of at a blockage or loggerheads over something, that taking the time to realize that what you need to do is open the space, create feelings of respect, create feelings that in the other person that they've been listened to, to try to sort of, the idea I think is to try to get beyond the negative feelings to more positive feelings and sort of open up, a, just open up the space for the conversation. That, you know, that is a similar thing to, I think, what I know you're talking about something a little different, but I do see that as kind of fundamental. I mean, I'm, I'm dealing in the relative and, and I'm sort of, I'm dealing with people who are fighting all the time about really things we shouldn't be fighting about, people caring about things that we shouldn't be caring about, and people thinking they know things that they don't. This whole idea you know, there there's a a, a, a guy uh, who wrote an amazing book. I never he he wouldn't let me interview him. He's too busy. But he had he won the Nobel Prize for economics, named Daniel Kahneman, and he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he's a very good friend of a friend of mine, uh, Paul Slovic, who was in my book. And these guys started this thing called uh, behavioral economics. It's very sophisticated new way of looking at economic theories. And he, he was the first non-economist to win a Nobel Prize for economics. He was a psychologist. And he and his partner worked for years and years. They were Israeli uh, psychologists. One of the things he said is that human beings have this bias, this sort of tendency to so when something surprising happens to them, something totally unexpected happens to them, they have no idea why or how. They don't really understand what it was that caused this unexpected event. It could be a scientist, 
could just be a person, something really unusual happens to them. He said, even though they know nothing about the cause, that within a very short period of time, they start to construct an explanation that becomes the explanation. And before you know it, you go from knowing nothing to knowing what happened and being able to explain it, even though there's abs- you have absolutely no predictive ability in that understanding to know what's going to happen in the future. And so we trick ourselves into thinking that we know things that we don't know. And I think that happens a lot. In fact, I think we know far less than we think we do. And I think that this ability to be able to realize just how little you know and how likely it is that that other person may have a point and that you might actually even be wrong, we need to become more familiar with that. That's a fundamental thing that, you know, it's like this, it's like the second element, right? Absolutely. It's like the expressed value of the second element. I mean, does that tie in with what you said earlier about the tribalism that we tend to look at things not so much in terms of is that right or wrong, but does that agree with my tribe or are you outside of my tribe? And then that's exactly right. Based on that, we decide is it correct and true or is it not? That's exactly right. And you, the thing is that a lot of these people are, um, propaganda is a weird thing because it's true that there are people who, who produce or, or who create propaganda and there are people who are become the victims of it. But many, many people both consume and spread propaganda unconsciously. In fact, I would say most propaganda is spread that way. Absolutely. And, and so to treat the other person like they're Darth Vader is like wrong. Not because their ideas deserve respect, but because it's just inaccurate. That's right. <laughs> and, and that's precisely the reason why several years ago I closed my Facebook account. Yeah. And I can totally understand that. I think it's, uh, I've, um, stopped Facebook for about a year. I'm back on it again. I don't do that much on it. But I think it's way, way worse than guns and oil and gas and cigarettes. And I think Facebook is really bad. Like the algorithms of these social media sites, they, they are worse than propaganda. You know, propaganda is in the business of dividing people and getting people to hate and be angry. And, and that's exactly what these algorithms do as well. They, they intentionally feed you what your yes. tribe is saying and thus strengthen the, those beliefs, whether they be right or wrong. They contribute to the growth of unreasonableness. Yeah. yeah. And you can't have healthy societies when everyone is so convinced about their unreasonable ideas. That's right. <laughs> One of the things that I once heard Noam Chomsky say was the understanding or the realization that the basis of many, many, if not all of the problems we see today, have at their root cause simple greed. And when that's at the essence of so many of these issues, then again, I have to wonder about what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said about the inner ecology, if we could rather address that, because facts will not change a person's greed. If they're motivated by greed, as so many are, Facts are not going to change that. In some way, we have to elevate the consciousness of the world. Would you agree to some extent with that? Yeah, I, I, I also th- I agree, and, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, but I think that we need to participate in the to and fro of public conversation as well, because the bigger the bigger problem, I think, than so many people being misinformed or tribalized is uh, the why bother problem. Most people don't have the time. You know, there's almost like they have a finite pool of worry, right? There's only so many things they can be concerned about and it's already full, right? So, and so to me, you, you can't do anything about climate change without participating in public discourse. 
You're not going to do it by meditating. You're not going to do it by self-improvement. You're, you have to do it by participating in the political process, but you're not going to participate in the political process in any healthy way if you also don't do the, uh, the work on your own character and consciousness. You know, you're not, you're not going to be anyone that anyone wants to listen to. Right. From your previous book to this book, I'm, I'm right near an idiot. Almost 10 years have lapsed or, or a little more than 10 years. Is there anything particular going on in your life or were you not thinking to write a book and then you just felt that you had to then address this issue in this, in this third book? Yeah, I'm sort of, I, I mean, now I'm looking at another book. You know, I'm, I'm just starting to kind of, well, I haven't actually, I've been, that's not true. I've been thinking and then rethinking for a couple of years. I mean, at first, uh, you know, after you, 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 when a book comes out, like you finish a book, it takes like a year and a half for it to come out. Now, these days, even more, just because everything's so slow with production and everything. So you, you deliver the thing. And then a year and a half later, you have to start thinking about it again. You'd, and you, you do a whole new thing. And it's like hundreds and hundreds of speeches and, uh, media interviews. And, and it's almost like a whole new thing where you're trying to, in a, in a way for me, what it was because I was able to then have a conversation with people, I learned more about what my book was about than I knew when I actually published it sure. or when I handed it in. And so you go through that process and then you're so exhausted, you, you would think that anyone who writes more than one book is out of their minds. And so you just can't do it. But the problem is that the whole subject area, this area is so complex and it's not easy to understand it. And so I sort of feel like the, one of the things I'd like to do I, I, a lot of my talks are at universities, you know, to master's programs and, and students who, you know, you see these incredibly intelligent, caring people. And I kind of feel like uh, my experience, most people don't do what I do or have any idea how, what I even do. And so I feel like I really actually feel that I have a responsibility to some of these young people to, use the knowledge I have to explain things uh, in a more helpful way. And so I'm now kind of moving more in the direction of a different style of book that would be much shorter, be more like a handbook, how you do things rather than sort of a bigger kind of more of a Bible kind of the one I'm writing, you're an idiot is, is pretty tough reading. And so something that was more simple and just like a handbook, you know, that would help people just to understand, like conflict resolution, to understand, you know, how do you create a story? Like, what does that actually mean? I mean, everybody knows in a sense what a story is, but like as a, you know, you could have, in fact, I help, I train people on this kind of stuff, but I could write a chapter or two in this book on, on basically sto on storytelling, storytelling for leaders, community leaders, and, you know, that they could look at it and within a couple of hours, really get some valuable advice on how to do it. And so that's what I'm working on right now. In other words, on the same topic of public discourse, yep. Yep. but but a more fundamental approach on the basics of it. Yes. How, how to create your story, how to relate it to others, how to listen to others, how, right. how to exchange information without animosity, I suppose. Yeah, and those, that's a very good way of, of summarizing it, right? And, and not make it, not make it as complicated as I have in the past. Right, right, right. This whole topic, I find it so fascinating because the, the degree of misinformation is mind boggling. And I, I have to ask you as an expert in the field, has it always been like this? Because certainly I was not aware of it until a few years ago. And I wonder, has it always been like that? And we've just become more aware of it now with the rapid and instant communication of the internet? Or is it that it's increasing and because of the internet, and of course there's more of it by volume, but has it always been there, but just somewhat limited by the types of communications that were available? Or have we become more mendacious 
as a society? My sense of it is, yes, it's always been there. And so, you know, since, since we learned to open our mouths and talk to each other, I think we've also, you know, practiced this, you know, pulling one over on each other. But I think that over time, what's happened is that the public relations business started in maybe 1930, somewhere around there, as an industry. And it was the people who were working in propaganda in the armed forces that were that were part of this whole flourishing. It was all based on this idea, a couple of ideas, but one of them in particular was this idea that the emotional content of your story or of your message is much more powerful than the information in it. That may not seem like a big thing, but it turned out to be like a really big thing. And it created a multi-billion dollar industry. It helped create the marketing world, the advertising world. But as time went on, in parallel to the development of this industry was the kind of growth in capitalism. And so you had this industry that was in the business of selling stuff and per persuading people of certain kinds of things growing at the same time. And, so and the whole social sciences was also growing. So back in, in 1930, there was no such thing as a focus group. There was no such thing as a public opinion poll. Stanford University had not done massive, massive combing through of data to sort of look at how you manipulate this kind of person and this person and this person, like all this kind of social science about how it is you motivate people or understand what's going on in their mind. That has grown over the past century, huge amount. And at the same time, probably this is the biggest thing, social media came along. And social media basically has created this animosity and this, this comfort with cult-like ideas and hate and anger. It's basically created spaces for people to have large groups of people to have really ugly ideas that are totally wrong, totally unethical, and for the rest of the world not to see it at all. Like most of these conversations are not taking place in public spaces. They're taking place within the groups that just reinforce them. So Facebook and Twitter getting off of those. These are, th these are very, very unhealthy kinds of companies. So I think it's a kind of a combination of social science, social media, the sort of evolution of these professions, if you want to call them that, that have made it much, much worse than it was even when Hitler was doing it, right? So in that sense, are we going backwards instead of forwards, Jim? I think that there's always a way that you can look at things positively and negatively. These things have basically motivated people to stop taking all this freedom and this good world that we've, our parents and grandparents have been so, you know, have worked so hard for to stop taking it for granted. And so you see more and more people standing up and no longer being part of this bystander peanut gallery you know, being willing to do something about it. And that, which is, that would be the positive element. You said in uh, an article you wrote for Yale, Climate Connections, we're talking about the TED Prize winner, Karen Armstrong. Right. And you said, she suggested we follow the golden rule. And I quote, look into your own heart, discover what gives you pain, and refuse under any circumstances whatsoever to inflict that pain on anyone else. Never treat others as you would not like to be treated yourself. So beautiful, eh? Perfect. If there were more corporate and business leaders that followed that principle, we would have a far better world. She wrote a book called A Charter for Compassion, and it was a book that was funded by Ted. She won the she won the TED Prize for that year, and they gave her $200,000, and she pulled together all these religious leaders from around the world. And 
they all sat down and decided what would be in this book. And one of the things that she said that came out of it was that all of the religions that she studied over the years, and she's written all these books on religion, had the, that golden rule in common. They maybe said it a little bit different, but all the way back even to Confucius. And she said that the thing that we have to realize about the golden rule is that it, how practical it is that when Confu Confucius was alive and Jesus was alive in very dangerous times, they had to take care of their community. It wasn't about going to church and, you know, you know, reading and, you know, telling, saying prayers and stuff. It wasn't just about the religion part of it. It was about how do you live in a, in a, conflicted society in a dangerous world and the golden rule was was the sort of central heart of that and so she want wanted when i talked to her she said you know my emphasis is that this is very practical it's not religious it's not spiritual this is this is the way to live in the world right right it's physics isn't it, it it's every action has an equal and opposite reaction right so Again, coming back to what you said earlier, both are necessary. Action in the expressed relative world and something to deal with the inner ecology as well, something to develop consciousness, greater empathy, greater compassion, greater acceptance and tolerance and understanding, enlivening that unified field between us in addition to acting in the relative. Yeah, I mean... Don't be a bystander and don't be a divider. Perfect place for us to stop. James Hogan has said that the most pressing problem we face today is not climate change. It is the pollution in the public square, where a toxic smog of adversarial rhetoric, propaganda, and tribalism stifles discussion and debate, creating resistance to change and thwarting our ability to solve our collective problems. His book, I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse, is now in its second edition. James Hogan, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you on Simplest State. Thank you.